1: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio
0: Player app.
2: This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW.
0: You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode...
3: One of my concerns, to me was how this program works for businesses themselves, not for employees that have been laid off and continued to be laid off, but uh, kind of a windfall or bailout for business, particularly big business.
0: Is the federal wage subsidy program coming up against some serious problems? A little bit of good news for workers in the hospitality industry.
4: This is a relief fund that uh, is going to support the Canadian hospitality workers, which is the front of the house and the back of the house people.
0: And local renters advocates are sounding the alarm as rent payments are once again coming due.
4: Folks are
5: making choices between uh, food and the very high rents that they
0: have. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. In the last 24 hours, we've gotten some more information on what happened in Nova Scotia in that mass shooting. We know more about what the shooter was doing and what his movements were on that that critical 24-hour period. For more on this, now we're joined by Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Simi. So what did we learn from the RCMP in the last 24 hours?
6: Yeah, they've started to fill in the gaps in that timeline that they released last week. There were large periods of time that were unaccounted for. We didn't know, for example, where the shooter had spent the night uh, after he began this shooting rampage in the tiny little community of Pic. We now have a clearer idea of that thanks to surveillance images that they released yesterday. So we know that when police arrived on the scene in Pic at 10.26 p.m. on Saturday, they said they encountered a chaotic scene. Three structures on fire, 13 people already dead. They thought they had set up a perimeter and kept the gunman contained until the next morning when 911 calls came in and they realized they had not. Well, we now know that gunman slipped away just nine minutes after police arrived, driving that mock RCMP cruiser through a field and onto the community of DeBert. That's about 25 kilometers away. We now know he spent many hours, about six hours, in that community in an industrial area. We don't know what he was doing, but it wasn't until about 5.30 the next morning that he moved on. He went to the community of Wentworth. That's where he targeted his next victims, a couple, who police say he killed and then spent several hours in their house. Again, we don't know what he was doing there before he lit it on fire.
0: Hmm. Okay, so how did they track this information down? Was a lot of this like surveillance footage, security camera footage, that kind of thing?
6: Exactly. Surveillance footage and interviews with witnesses. And there is an extensive list of witnesses. They say they're now about halfway through interviewing the people they have on their list so far. There are 435 people on that witness wow. list. So they've tracked uh, surveillance video and and images. They pulled still images that they've released from those surveillance video uh, from different areas, businesses, as well as uh, porch cameras and door cameras that people have in the area. Mm-hmm.
0: So what have we learned about the weapons that he had with him and uh, the potential? Was he wearing police uniforms while this was all going on?
6: Yeah, he was. Um, And so that's one of those really disturbing elements of all of this is that he did convincingly look like an RCMP officer. We know he was driving that mocked up cruiser that looked very much like a real RCMP vehicle. He was also wearing pieces of authentic RCMP uniforms. So we don't know exactly how he got those. RCMP aren't saying much about that yet, but they did mention in yesterday's news conference that sometimes RCMP uniforms are sold at surplus auctions, so it's possible uh, that collectors can pick them up there. We know he had several different pieces of uniforms that he wore throughout this whole rampage, and he discarded pieces of those uniforms as he went along, in fact, eventually changing out of the clothes that made him look like an RCMP officer by the end of all of this. Uh, We also know a bit more about the weaponry that he was using. He had in his possession several semi-automatic handguns, as well as two semi-automatic rifles. What we don't know about those yet, uh, still a long list of questions. Really, we don't know where they came from or how he got them, and we don't know what weapons he was using at which crime scenes.
0: Right, okay, and so where are they at with the investigation now? What more are they looking for here?
6: Well, really still in the very beginning stages, again, this is just such a massive investigation. I'll remind you, there are 16 different crime scenes. Most of those have now been actually turned back over to the people who own those properties. So most of the properties have been handed back over to family members, um, five scenes are still being held in Nova Scotia right now, and I believe those are the scenes where there were fires. We know they're still working through those burned remains of those homes in Pic. There are four structure fires, or sorry, three structure fires in Port-A-Pic, as well as one in the community of Wentworth that I mentioned earlier. So five scenes are still being held by RCMP. They still have a large area in the Port-A-Pic area blocked off, and they're restricting access to it. So we know uh, they're just getting through those witness interviews as well. And they mentioned yesterday that the gunman's former partner who managed to escape that night right. and survive all of this, she's a key witness for them as well.
0: All right, Sarah, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Sarah Ritchie, Global News anchor and reporter in Halifax. The gunman's uh, girlfriend, the one that uh, Sarah just mentioned there, who escaped and is a key witness, uh, she this is the woman who hid in the woods all night long. And it was when she emerged in the morning uh, when she thought the coast was clear and called police. That's when police first learned that the uh, the shooter here was wearing RCMP clothing and was driving a vehicle that looked just like an RCMP vehicle. That's when everything changed. So her testimony is definitely pivotal, pivotal in all of this. So we'll keep
2: you posted. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Well, this week was a big week for a lot of businesses across the country. They were finally able to apply for that federal wage subsidy program, and we know that tens of thousands of businesses have done just that. This is the program that uh, the government will pay about 75% of the wages of workers under a certain payroll and under a certain threshold just to keep companies and employees on the payroll even if they're not working. It has led to some hiccups and some issues, and we're going to talk more about that now uh, with the help of Alan Lanthier, who's a former advisor to the Department of Finance and the Canada Revenue Agency. Alan, thank you for joining us this morning.
3: Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks, Simi.
0: I know you wrote about this in the Financial Post. What kind of concerns did you raise about this? Well, I
3: I raised um, a number of concerns. Uh, One of my concerns, Simi, was... uh, how this program works for businesses themselves, not, not, not for employees that have been laid off and continued to be laid off, but uh, kind of a windfall or bailout for business, particularly big business. So um, as you know, we already have a wage subsidy program, the, the CERB, the, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, so that pays individuals $500 a week or 2000 a month. So mm-hmm. that was already in place. If you're unable to work because of COVID-19, you apply for it and you get $500 a week. And um, it's a really good program. It's uh, more than seven, pe- seven million people have applied for it and are receiving it already. You're eligible for that one if you're employed or if you're self-employed. If you're on, if you're paying into uh, employment insurance, or if you weren't. Uh, So, it was a terrific program, but the government came under pressure from lobby groups to do more, unions and and business groups, interestingly. And so, in addition to the $2,000 a month CERB, we now have the second program that that you're talking about, the Mm -hmm. 75% wage subsidy. And um, the applications for that, of course, started going out on Monday and... um, as you said there's been more than 10,000 applications uh, received already and that's what the government tells us so under the new program if you're laid off without pay your employer can apply on your behalf and the the employer gets a subsidy mm-hmm. per employee of up to $847 a week you know it depends on what the employee, what the employee was making before the pandemic hit so the employer gets the cash and pays the same amount right to the um, in, in employee. So we now have two classes of unemployed workers. Those those who get $500, while the more fortunate receive $847. But you asked about the businesses or what my concerns are, and the new subsidy, in addition to paying kind of an enhanced amount, to uh, individuals who, who are laid off and there's no work for them to do. In addition to that, the, the new program plays the, pays the employer 75% for everyone. For people that are still working and we're, we're continuing to be paid by um, by the employer, uh, the, the employer is going to get back 75% of those wages as mm-hmm. well. So... Air Canada, for example, Um, Air Canada had 30,000 employees in Canada. They've laid off about 16,000. So those 16,000 now, instead of getting 500, are going to get up to um, 847 a week. But 14,000 Air Canada employees across the country were still working and still getting paid, you know, for example, it's cargo and freight forwarding operations, from mm-hmm. from what I understand, are going gangbusters. So Air Canada is going to receive 70, 75% of wages for people who were working, who were contributing to the business, and who they were going to pay anyway. So Air so, Canada gets a big chunk of money for those employees, and it can do whatever it wants with the government money. It 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 could, if it wish, use some of the cash to pay dividends to its shareholders. The the government has imposed no restrictions, whatever, on what, particularly the large, well, on any businesses, but it's a particular potential benefit to large businesses.
0: So are you concerned that there's two tiers of employees here then? You've got the people who are on CERB and you've got the people who are getting the wage subsidy and you're creating like almost like two completely different groups of workers.
3: That's that for sure. That's um, there's two or three concerns, and that's one of them. We we do have two classes of workers: those who are fortunate enough to be employed by a corporation, and the corporation's in a position where it can apply for the seventy five percent and just pay it on like back to back. The the employer receives it from the government. The employer just pays it right to the employee. So yeah, th- those individuals can receive. Um, up to 847 a week versus uh, the 7 million people that have applied for the right. for the CERB are getting 500 a, a week. So, yeah, for sure, it's uh, we have two classes of workers now.
0: Now, Alan, though, I guess the question here is then what do you think the government should have done? Because you mentioned yourself they were under a whole lot of pressure, right, to do something quickly and get the money into the hands of businesses and people. So do you think there was a better way of doing this?
3: Um Yes, I do. And I, I mean, I, I, well, first of all, we already had the CERB. And if, 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 if we're concerned about people that have lost their jobs, uh, are unable to work because of COVID-19, and, and, and we're all worried about, uh, about that. And as I say, 7 million people have already applied for and are receiving the CERB. So the, the government al- already had a terrific program in, in place. It didn't really need a second program, um, but as I say, I mean they uh, Bill Mor they they enacted the five hundred dollars bill. Bill Morneau appeared before the Senate the following day. He was asked about well, there's certain other countries that have, that Denmark has a seventy five percent subsidy, mm-hmm. um, the UK has an eighty percent subsidy. Why aren't we doing anything? And Bill Morneau said. We're not doing it. we've looked at it. I had a telephone call yesterday with G7 finance ministers. We don't need the program two days later he flip- flopped and said, we're going to do a second overlapping program so I just don't um, I don't think we needed a second program, certainly not with respect to um, unemployed individuals
0: okay so then moving forward then what do you think they can do to potentially fix this if they can
3: um, I don't. I don't think they can fix it because uh, I mean it's. There's been so many flip-flops on the government's part. I mean, if Bill Morneau did another uh, um, did another flop on this one, I think he'd have to go to his villa in France and just stay there um, for the foreseeable future. So, I, I I think I think we're we're stuck with this. It's a 73 billion dollar program for 12 weeks only. If it's extended, it's going to be even more than that, so Canadian taxpayers, you and I are—I mean, we're—we'll be paying for this cost. And um,
0: but, Alan, like, I guess I wonder, what were they supposed to do? Right? These are extraordinary times. Huge amounts of pressure. They had people coming at them from all sides saying, "Do something." I would imagine that some mistakes are going to get made.
3: Um, well, the seventy-three billion mistake is a big mistake. Uh, we, we we had the, again uh, seven. There, Before the pandemic hit, there were 14, 15 million employees in the private sector or self-employed. You add them together, Canada had 14 to 15 million people working in the private sector or self-employed. 7 million people have applied for the $500 a, a week. So really, what, what more did we need to do? Well, mm. large business said, you know... We need some more money to get us through these tough times. Um, well, that's and they may well do that, and then that's that's something we might just have to step up to do. But to do it as an absolute grant with no conditions, you, you know, if 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 you're if you're an individual or a small business and get a forty thousand loan f- uh, from the government under its new SIBA program. That comes in by way of loan. 10000 may be forgivable. You're, right. you're going to have to pay the government back 30000 to 40000 well, Air Canada, I'll continue to use them as an example, doesn't have to pay a penny back. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think the government could have done it by um, Air Canada, you need money to survive, we'll give you loans. Right. or we'll take an equity position in your company. But we're going to make some arrangements where you're going to pay us back two or three years from now, at least a portion, because uh, we helped you get through this. Uh, okay. But this is not this is just an outright non, non-repayable grant, and it's a bit of a windfall to, to, uh, to, to, to many large businesses.
0: All right, Alan, thanks for your time.
2: Okay, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: All right, let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. She's got a cool story to talk about with us. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning,
1: Simi. Have
0: you heard of the All In Challenge? I love it. I wish it was here in <laughs> Canada. I wish like we could get something like that going here, but I've been watching it unfold in the United States and there's some stuff that even I wanted to bid on.
1: Yeah, it's this essentially an auction that just has the coolest prizes you've ever heard of. And the tickets are actually affordable. I mean, how much better does it get than that, right? Exactly.
0: (laughs) I love this stuff because there's some once in a lifetime prize packages that are available with this.
1: Oh my god, it's unreal! Like when we were first kind of talking about this the other day, I thought, "Well, okay, how good can these prize packages be?" Yeah. But we're talking—you can win for the price of what is it? Ten dollars a ticket, or ten dollars for a package of tickets? A round of golf at Pebble Beach with Justin Timberlake and Bill Murray.
0: I would do that. I would. I was ready to buy tickets for that. Cause you can get like 10 tickets for a hundred dollars. All the money goes to food banks and different like meals on wheels and different like food-based community organizations all to play, spend four hours with Bill Murray. I would totally do that.
1: Absolutely unreal. I mean, there's another one you could enter. Uh, it's ten dollars for ten entries, and you can meet the entire cast of Friends and hang out on on the set of the show. I mean, these prize packages are really cool, and the tickets so cheap. Okay, you like basketball, so
0: you'll like this one. I, I, that's how I got. That's how I got into it. I was looking at one of the packages <laughs> that were available. Yeah,
1: was it this one to play a game of horse? courtside at a Lakers game after you get to play a game of horse with Magic Johnson. Fantastic.
0: And dinner with Magic, too, and his friends. That was not the one. I was looking at the one with Carmelo Anthony. My son was trying to convince me that he would take a gap year at university if he was allowed to take the money and bid on having a weekend with Carmelo Anthony in New York City. (laughs) And I had to tell him that was not going to happen. Um, No, please invest in your future. (laughs) I also love the um, Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds one.
1: Well, they have this ongoing, joking feud that they really ham up on social media and any kind of media that they do. It's really, really funny stuff. And yeah, Vancouver's own Ryan Reynolds is also involved in it. Listen to this.
7: People think it started with us. Well, it didn't. No. The Jackmans and Reynolds have been mortal enemies for as long as there have been Jackmans and Reynoldses. Sis. For generations, it's been a point of family honor to oppose each other. We start a gin company. And we start a coffee company. Together, we start a war. Because gin is for the weak. That's right, asshole. And coffee is for sleepy people. In fact, there's only one thing that we do agree on. For wine a really pizza. good show. Well, for one day, and one day only, we've agreed to agree to not disagree and disagree. And only a pandemic could could make that happen We've agreed to join the all-in challenge We've agreed to the all-in challenge We'll stop our feud for one day And help sell a different type of drink Lemonade At your child's lemonade stand That's right All to help fight food insecurity Because no one deserves to go hungry Just go to this this URL It's a URL Nobody calls it a web Sorry Sorry (laughs) (laughs) We're doing this (laughs) here we go guys we're doing this
0: i love this so you can bid on having hugh jackman and ryan reynolds come to your house and run your child's lemonade stand for a couple of hours can you imagine nikki how great that would be
1: Yeah, I think it would be just mildly successful. You might make a few bucks at the very least, right?
0: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you'd make so much money. So much money. Uh, The one that sold for the most amount of money, and this one is done. It was an auction that was done last night. This was tickets to see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers home opener, of course, with Tom Brady, to have dinner with Tom Brady, a private workout with Tom Brady, and a bunch of your friends so there'd be four of you all together. This one sold for $800,000 U.S. That's the highest priced one that they've got there right now.
1: Whoa! That's a super cool opportunity. A once in a lifetime opportunity, I guess, if you have that much money. If you don't, though, uh, I guess for American citizens, they can still enter some of these cheaper draws for ten bucks, and you get however Love many it. entries. I mean, it's really not a bad deal. The one that caught my eye, playing five on five with David Beckham. How cool would that be?
2: So great, um,
0: Nikki. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simi.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: You know, one of the hardest-hit sectors in this whole pandemic economic situation is the hospitality industry. There is a bit of good news for workers who are out of a job in that industry, though. The Canadian Hospitality Workers Relief Fund is providing grants to eligible hospitality workers. We wanted to learn more about it, so joining us now is local chef and entrepreneur Vikram Vidge to talk about it. Good morning, Vikram.
4: Good morning to me. Good morning to everybody else who's affected by this Pandemic.
0: I'm sure you are too. Like for you, what has, what's business been like for you?
4: Well, you know, on, on the emotional level, it has been extremely tough because uh, these are uh, my immigrant women who have worked in the kitchen for me. People who have worked in the front of the house with me for over 25 years and have to sit them down and say, I don't have work for you anymore. Uh, was one of the most, uh, toughest things I've done in my life and uh, you know it was at an emotional level to see your restaurants shut down and the lights in in the restaurant especially when you rely on people I mean we are an industry that congregates that meets that you know makes Mm -hmm. people laugh and it's like a theater and and this, this theater is shut down and that really emotionally hurts obviously at a financial level it really hurts because uh, you know, you, you're not, you're not producing the food, you, you need to take care of the people and to look into people's faces and, and say, there is no work for us is, uh, including me and and the team is, is very, very tough.
0: And I'm sure you've heard that from many other friends and people in the industry as well. Is it just is the has the shock worn off yet?
4: No, I, I think the shock is going to be there for a long time. I don't know how we're going to recoup uh, from this, um, uh, you know, emotional uh, pandemic almost that has happened. I think the toll of it is going to come back when you see, uh, you know, restaurants that that were really good and mom-pop shops and they just gave up on it and they just didn't run it anymore because, uh, you know, they just didn't have the stress or, or, or the desire to, to fight back anymore. Because it's going to be a harder challenge to come back and then regroup yourself up yeah. and then try to, you know, pay back what, what you owe. I mean, it's, it's very tough. You know, we yeah. already run very razor-thin margins, basically. And on top of it, to try to, you know, work for two more years to pay it off is, is very tough.
0: Now, we're talking about this morning, the Canadian Hospitality Workers Relief Fund. What is this all about?
4: Well, uh, this is a relief fund that uh, is going to support the Canadian hospitality workers, which is the front of the house and the back of the house people. So anybody from a dishwasher to um, somebody who, you know, cuts vegetables or does who's a prep cook or the front of the house, you know, who takes orders, who works at, at a minimum wage or a little bit more, uh, the, the hospitality fund that has been created And they're eligible to when they apply for a $500 grant. And this $500, you know, buys two to three weeks of groceries basically Mm -hmm. for a lot of the people. And it means uh, that they'll be able to at least survive and regroup themselves and emotionally. Not have to worry about where this five hundred dollars will come from, or it may go towards paying the rent, maybe.
0: Okay. And
4: so we have three chefs across uh, Canada that that uh, have uh, you know gotten together to to do this. Uh, Dan Geltner and Victor Berry from East, and I'm from from the West Coast. But the corporate partners are uh, uh, you know people like La Table de Chef and uh, Well Built and Garland and Uber Eats and. FIFI and Interact and Staffy. So these are corporate partners. They're the ones who've come up with the funds. Right. They're the ones who've come up with the money, and they're going to give it up to, and it's up to $1 million. Oh. So anybody can, who, who feels qualified can go on May 6th to the website of chwrf.ca. Okay. and apply. And if they qualify for it, obviously, there are some uh, questions that they have to uh, answer. They will get $500 uh, uh, in their bank account. Every- uh, and, and that's huge for a lot of people who work in the hospitality industry. We know you could be it a casino is. worker, you could be a delivery driver, you could be anybody that, that needs that fund um, is important for them.
0: It is. And you know what? It's great. That- this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I need to get the word out on this too. So Vikram, thank you for helping us with that.
4: My pleasure, Simi.
2: Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: You know, B.C., we may forget, is actually in the middle of two public health emergencies. One is the pandemic, of course. But for several years now, we have also been dealing with the opioid overdose epidemic, which was declared several years now a public health emergency. So how is that being influenced by what we see going on now with the COVID-19 situation? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined now by Dr. Patricia Daly, who is the Chief Medical Health Officer with the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. Dr. Daly, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Do you think sometimes we do forget that we have these 2 situa- BC is unlike anywhere else because these two situations are going on?
8: I think we do. It's been uh, four years since we declared the opioid overdose. Public health emergency, and it may not be front of mind for people with the current COVID 19 pandemic, but for some communities, particularly the downtown east side in Vancouver, it's actually still the more serious public health problem.
0: And how is it, how is the one impacting the other?
8: Well, what we found is that uh, although we saw a decline in overdose deaths last year compared to 2017 and 2018, uh, we still had very high numbers of overdose deaths. And we have put in place a number of measures that have reduced the death rate, including overdose prevention sites, distribution of naloxone, treatment for people who have addiction to opioids. But in March and April, with fear about COVID-19, we saw a dramatic reduction in visits to our overdose prevention sites in the downtown east side. And at the same time, police started to report an increase in overdose deaths. And even though we haven't seen serious cases of COVID-19 in that neighbourhood, in fact, there's been very few cases, uh, we're concerned that people are staying in their rooms, using substances alone and putting themselves at risk of overdose deaths because of unwarranted fears about the COVID-19 virus.
0: So would you say it's making those overdose numbers worse? Well, that's what we're concerned about. We, just, we have preliminary data
8: from the police. We don't have coroner's data yet for February, March or April. But the early signs, and we look at things like the visits to our overdose prevention sites are concerning. Normally we see 6,000 visits per week to those sites and nobody has died at an overdose prevention site because people are consuming their substances under observation of those who can respond if they have an overdose. And in March we saw visits drop to 2,000 a week, so only a third of the usual volume. And we know people are still using substances and we're concerned that they're using them perhaps alone in their rooms where they're not being observed and where if they overdose they're at great greater risk of dying
0: and yet that's what we saw in other parts of the province usually with those overdose numbers isn't it that the bigger concern outside of the downtown east side was people doing exactly that being alone at home and taking drugs that's correct we
8: have a community in the downtown east side that's really rallied to support people who use substances and we've seen that that's really made a, a huge difference that overdose deaths have declined even though. Overdoses are still occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the distribution of on the people observing others, that's really helped. We don't want that to be reversed.
0: So clearly, though, the message about COVID-19 is getting through to people on the downtown east side, but it's also having repercussions. That's right. And, and we want to, first of all, assure the community that we
8: uh, we are actively looking for COVID-19. I think people may have be aware that if this virus gets into shelters, for example, it can cause outbreaks. We've taken steps with City of Vancouver and with the provincial government to thin out some of the shelters, now to provide other housing options for people. Uh, we're actively testing. We have a van in the neighbourhood. We've opened up a new clinic. We're testing is done on a walk-in basis. And we haven't found a lot of COVID-19. So just to reassure the public, we're actively looking for it. In fact, we're doing testing at more than double the rate in the downtown east side uh, compared to anywhere else in our region and yet still only low numbers. So we think we're in front of this. We don't want people to avoid those services that are life-saving to them, like overdose prevention sites.
0: Why do you think those numbers are so low in that area?
8: Uh, for, for COVID-19? Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a relatively closed community, and for the virus to get into that community, someone has to bring it in. I think we were fortunate that we did get in front of this. Uh, we uh, The early cases in our region, returning travellers, were contained and even as we saw community spread and I started to look in the downtown east side, we've only had very few cases and we're very actively uh, uh, testing anyone, even with mild symptoms. If we do get a positive, that person is isolated. If they're homeless, we have a place where we can safely isolate them in a room with their own bathroom. We're following up on all the contacts. So because we've been proactive, we've prevented the virus from getting a foothold in the neighbourhood.
0: But in the meantime, then are you worried about what's going to happen when uh, perhaps we're not as worried about COVID nineteen anymore, and once again we're facing those opioid numbers?
8: Yeah, I think it's a balance, and right now the, the, the bigger risk, the more serious risk for people in that neighborhood, remains opioid overdose deaths. So that's an important message to get to get out to the public. It doesn't mean we're not going to be proactive. Uh, and have healthcare staff in the neighborhood also testing for COVID-19. But we have to remember that if you're using substances, uh, especially illegal substances that may be contaminated with, with fentanyl, that's your bigger risk.
0: Is there increased testing among all the healthcare workers and support workers who work in the downtown east side as well?
8: Yes, we 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 included the workers in that neighborhood in our testing strategy. Because it's often people who may come into the neighbourhood, whether it's for work or new arrivals who uh, may have been exposed elsewhere who can bring the virus into the neighbourhood. We know that the workers there, uh, of course, they're concerned about working during the COVID-19 pandemic as well, so we want to reassure them that Ah, uh, there are services available to them. We're doing testing. We're doing what's necessary to the con- control the spread because they also are concerned for their own health and safety as well.
0: Are you kind of bracing yourself, though, Dr. Daly, for the next reporting of the numbers from the coroner's office? Uh yes. We always are. We don't
8: want to see a re- reversal. We were on a good trend at the end of last year, but we're actually we actually still have a long way to go to get back to uh, the, the pre emergency numbers were still four to five times the death rate in BC last year of overdoses compared to what we were before 2016.
0: Long way to go. Uh, thank you very much all this. My pleasure. That is Dr. Patricia Daly, the Chief Medical Health Officer with the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, talking about BC's other public health emergency, the opioid overdose epidemic. They are concerned about what they're hearing anecdotally from uh, Vancouver Police when it comes to the months of March and April, that they are seeing more overdoses in rooms with people by themselves and traffic way down at those uh, safe consumption sites where they were able to manage and prevent overdoses from happening but as Dr. Daly said we won't know for sure until we get those numbers but they, a lot of people are working very hard to manage those
2: things This is Mornings with Simi
0: Rent is due once again on Friday. And I'm sure just seeing that on the calendar, knowing it's there is a huge amount of anxiety and stress for so many people. Because if you're one of those whose job was impacted by COVID-19 in the last six weeks, I'm guessing, you know, not a lot of you have managed to get back to work or get enough money for rent essentially on May the 1st. So local renters advocates are sounding the alarm about this, saying, listen, what we did for uh, April 1st, may not be enough for May the 1st. So we wanted to talk more about that now. So joining us is Mazdak Garibnavaz Navaz from the Vancouver Tenants Union. Mazdak, thank you very much for being here.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So what do you think needs to be done then for May 1st?
5: Well, uh, the Vancouver Tenants Union is calling for uh, governments, uh, the, pro- the provincial government, to um, essentially cancel rents and mortgages uh what we're really seeing is that folks are making choices between uh food and the very high rents that they have um there they haven't received any support from the bc government yet uh they're still waiting and um so what that is going to uh the problems that that is going to cause is that renters are going to bear the brunt of this crisis by ending up going into rent debt. And so what we're really advocating for is uh, taking the profit motive out of housing by making sure that everyone uh, gets to keep their homes, whether that's, that's uh, uh, by uh, not paying rent or, or whether it's mortgages that uh, don't uh, get paid during the pandemic.
0: Right. So you, so what was done in April 1st, then you think that the renter's um, you know, credit that they were giving to people wasn't enough?
5: Well, so what really has happened in BC with this temporary rent supplement is that there's two main things that are true about it. Um, it's insufficient for paying the full rent, the average market rate of $2,100 for one bedroom, uh, the 300 bucks really doesn't go very far. Um, it, it's administratively burdensome, which uh, the B.C. Housing has announced that they're on track to process maybe a third of the applications by May 1st. Um, and it's not universal and it's inaccessible, which means that people are falling through the cracks. So for those reasons, what we're really advocating for is to freeze these payments so that people can... Um, use the money, the, the supports that they're receiving from government to um, pay for, their, for, their, for feeding themselves and the, the bills and expenses that they have.
0: Have you been hearing from renters on this? Is May 1st, do you think, going to be tougher than April 1st?
5: It'll definitely be tougher. Um, what we're hearing essentially is that um, either they're still waiting for supports for, for the BC Housing to process that application um, if they're talking to their landlords, they're either dealing with corporate landlords. So it's it's companies that are saying it's business as usual. There's no flexibility. And if you can't pay the full amount, you should leave. Um, they're getting uh, things like illegal eviction notices. Uh, evictions are banned right now, but landlords are still using them to intimidate them, Um and if there is flexibility in some situations, it's usually rent deferrals,
3: mm-hmm. which
5: means that you would build up debt in the future. Your rent will be higher, uh, and and you would be wiping away your future essentially by building up that debt.
0: Now, Masak, I know in the beginning of this crisis, we heard stories about uh, landlords who, you know, were still evicting people and still doing those things. Do you think that's changed now? Has like, what is the relationship like? Do you think right now between landlords and tenants?
5: Well, again, I mean, what we're seeing is in in most of the cases that we're hearing about is that landlords are not looking to lose a single dime, um, and so whether that's through tactics that look like intimidation or whether it's suggestions of signing on to agreements that are uh, very bad for the tenants uh, down the road, um, landlords are trying to sort of continue the business as usual. And we're really of the mind that we, people should not be making profit off of this crisis. Um, and, and we should be sharing that burden.
0: Right. If I could just play devil's advocate here for a second, then what's different now versus a month ago is that a lot of people have also received their uh, perhaps their SERP checks from the federal government or some kind of assistance from this. So does that make it worse? Do you think people can still pay a portion of their rent?
5: So I think that when we're talking about the SERP, the $2,000, first of all, that's going to be tax deductible. So it's going to be less than that. But also in a, in a market where the average rate is, you know, $2,100 for one bedroom and uh, 3000 for a two-bedroom, um, we're really talking about uh, amounts that are not getting people there, especially considering that they have other expenses. So if the stance is that, you know, you're getting a support, therefore you should pay 75 80% of that to rent to landlords – um, really, our, our response is that that's support that people are receiving during a crisis uh, in order to make it through a crisis uh, and plan ahead, um, not that that then just becomes a vehicle to transfer that money upwards to someone who, uh, who has a, a financial investment.
0: All right, Mazdaq, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That is Mazdaq Garabnavaz with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Uh, They want more help for May the 1st, a rent day coming up on Friday, uh, saying that most people are still feeling the effects As you heard Mazdaq say there, he would like to see essentially rent forgiveness for May the First, uh, mortgage forgiveness as well for landlords. I I personally don't see that coming. I think April 1st was definitely dire straits, but have things improved for people? Like how are you going to be paying your rent and or mortgage uh, coming up on Friday? Do you have something in place to deal with it or are you still needing help? What is your situation? There's a lot of groups, a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations that are asking for help right now. It did come as a bit of a surprise, though, to hear that one of those groups is the Canadian Football League. Yeah, the commissioner has said they've asked the federal government for $150 million in financial support. To talk more about this, we're joined by Christian O'Mell, who's the host of the sports show on 680 CJOB. Uh, Good morning, Christian. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Sammy. Are you surprised by this?
9: i'm not totally surprised and just to provide some clarity on what they've asked for it's 30 million dollars now and if the season doesn't happen no great cup no nothing now we would know that by november then it would be up to 150 million dollars so what the government would have to commit to now isn't that much money and in terms of being surprised The CFL has never been raking in money. It's never been a league that has just been pumping out cash like the NFL, for instance, right? It's a league that relies very heavily on gate revenue, on concession revenue. I'd say at least half of its revenue is from just people going to games. And if you can't have fans in the stands, which it doesn't look like we're going to until at least September, if that's going to happen at all, this is going to be a league that's, gonna have a lot of problems making ends meet if there's no season this year
0: because i don't think it's any secret either is it christian that this is a league that has had a problem making ends meet for the last little while
9: absolutely right there's there's been so many years where the cfl has been in trouble where it's been a worried not necessarily about it folding but teams that have been doing very poorly at the gate right and you know they're in vancouver the bc lions are not the most popular product right you go to yeah. winnipeg here the, the bombers are number two the jets are number one but in saskatchewan right everyone's in love with the riders and across the league right there are a lot of teams in nhl cities where the cfl is pretty much number two at least in all those cities people still go to games but most of them aren't sellouts and it when people online see this story and Boy, there's a lot of divisive opinions on this online. People, A lot of people just rag on the CFL for fun. But the NHL minimum contract is $700,000. That would mean you're maybe the, one of the highest-paid players in the CFL. right? The minimum in the CFL is sixty-five k. These are mostly people that nowadays don't necessarily need a second job. I know maybe 15 years ago a lot of the they players did, had yeah. a second job. But it is it's a tough time for the CFL. And think of the club employees, the people that work at stadiums, everyone that's associated with putting on a CFL product. And there are a lot of people hard hit by this.
0: Oh, so interesting. Christian, thank you.
9: No problem.